Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Hi there. Hello. We're about to start our reading. This is uh, the Fantastic Fiction at KGB reading series, and it's been going on for a long time, since the 1990s, I believe. Um, Matthew Kressel and I have been running it for the last six years, maybe? And eight years. <laughs> time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> and um, we try to have a good uh, mix of people reading, and we hope usually that they're what they read kind of dovetails and isn't completely weirdly disparate, and we think that um, our readers tonight will be perf- a perfect matching. <clears throat> um, before we start, over the next, can you hear? Yeah? Hello? Hello? Can you hear me back there? All right. Um, over the next few months, our next readers are November 16th, Matthew Kressel and John Langan. <clears throat> December 21st to Sarah Pinsker and Livia Llewellyn. January 18th, Holly Black and Fran Wilde. February 15th, Michael Sisko and Nicholas Kaufman. <clears throat> March 15th, Nova Rensuma and Kini Abora Salam. April 19th, um, Seth Dickinson and Laura Ann Gilman. May 17th, E.C. Myers and Sam Miller. And over the next couple of months, we also have Sunny Moraine and Karen Euler, and we have we'll have that and so forth and so on. But tonight, our first reader, and I'm glad you all came here. I know that some of you might run out for the debate, but you can just watch it on YouTube after. So stay, stay and have fun here, and don't get your, don't get your stomach in a knot. <clears throat> anyway, our first reader. Okay, we have books by the authors back there. Um, Word Bookstore is selling. They have um, they have the Red Tree and the Drown Drowning Girl. Um, um, by, they have those by uh, Caitlin, and they also have um, the new book by Jack Ketchum, The Secret Life of Souls, which they shouldn't have, but they have. <laughs> written with director, it's early. I mean, it's not supposed to be out till next month. With um, written with director Lucky McKee, and uh, anyway, so for our first reader tonight is Caitlin R. Kiernan whose novels include The Red Tree and The Drowning Girl, a memoir, and her short fiction has been collected in such volumes as A's for Alien, The Ape's Wife and Other Stories, and the forthcoming Dear Sweet Filthy World. She also has a novella coming out from Tor.com, and the title is? Agents of Dreamland. Agents of Dreamland. I think it's coming out, you said, in February? Okay. And that'll be a standalone chapbook. I guess you can call it a chapbook. A chapbook novella. Okay. <laughs> anyway, she's two-time recipient of both the World Fantasy and Bram Stoker Award. Please welcome Caitlin R. Kernan. So yeah, Ellen already told you, so I don't have to do the spiel. Okay, can everybody hear me? Okay. Um, I'm actually reading from Agents of Dreamland. If I ever find it. Two, words written backwards, June 29, 2015. Drew is talking to me, whispering in my ear even though he's not here. At high noon, I'm standing in the darkness cast by my own shadow, the only darkness remaining in the world, and I stare out across the desert, past Salt Creek, towards the hazy, uneven gray periwinkle line that the chocolate mountains draw between the sky and the everlasting brownness of the Coachella hardscrabble. Behold, the kingdom of Caliche and horned toads, Drew said, and he laughed. The first day I was an inhabitant vomited upon the coast of the sea. That day, when I first stood upon the hot tin roof and followed the weather vane of his crooked finger, 
From there, from here, my eyes set eastward. I can see all the way to those crumbling schist ridges and peaks laid down in Precambrian oceans. If I squint hard, man, and harder still, like I've been taught, I might as well be seeing much farther away, past what mere eyes can discern to other mountain ranges and maybe all the way to the Palo Verde Valley in Blythe where the desert is tormented so that green things will grow to feed us all and please the fickle eye of mankind. There are trees in Blythe. I remember trees. Drew has been gone away on, Drew has gone away today on business and Madeline went with him and I am left here alone with myself and the others and with the sizzle of my brains in this woman's skull, a resonant frequency which perfectly matches white noise, the random signal possessed of a perpetual power supply, an indiscreet time, a procession of serially uncorrelated random variables, finite variance, zero mean. These thoughts tumble on whirring insect wings in the hexagonal honeycomb of my mind's eye, hollowing me out while the sun chars me the same earth tone shades as the desert. Down behind the husks of expired cars and trucks that make a rusty garden outside the ranch, the digital thermometer says it's 103.7. We're having a cold snap. Up here, scraping myself against the belly of the sky, it must be so much hotter. The salvation has sailed me out beyond all fears of conflagration. It's so close now, Drew told us all last night. You really have no notion how delightful it will be. Cross my heart and hope to die. Bow and peep, doe and tea, as you are the children of the next level. His voice soothes the meat and mud of my soul. I believe we're the purest communists there are, says he. Translation, evolution, metamorphosis, bliss and everlasting ice and transneptonian Kuiper belt blackness and you eat of my body and we will traipse the light fantastic across ether wastes to be free of false Christs. I don't know half of what it means and I don't pretend to. I can understand without a perfect understanding. He's shown me that. I can pop the cap and inhale deeply and fill myself with the gifts of gods who never were gods. Back in old lost angels before my deliverance to this deeper Cali dirt expanse of lizard and diamondback seraphim, wildcat bishops and rogue runners. I shot sweet Afghan heroin into my rotting arms between my toes and fingers, but I'm free now. You think this isn't paradise? You think this isn't Eden? Then you better think again, little Chloe. You better think again. Drew is a titan. You know a titan by the thunder in his belly and the fire on his chapped lips. We dine on rattlesnakes and hot green tea and Drew Standish. He tells us the last days are here. We camp up on the threshold, just switch on the television, that ginormous 1975 zenith with its, compo with its composite board wood grain cabinet and we astroglide the picture tubes. The thing gets no, no stations out here, no rabbit ears needed. We don't need networks and programming. We only need noise. We need only snow, electromagnetic noise, man, Simut Bertengar, as Indonesians say, which translates into something like War of the Ants. Radio waves, cosmic microwave background radiation. Baby, I'll dig this, okay? 1% of that crackly shit is light from the Big Bang. Come down 13 billion years to tickle your rods and cones. Me, I didn't know shit about physics and cosmology before I left LA. All I knew was the aching, all-devouring urgency of the next fix. I'm barefoot up here as the day I was born, high on our hot tin roof, high on cultured spores in the words of Drew. But like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace of wicked King Nebuchadnezzar, like Indian fakirs gifted by Allah, like an Apollo heat shield, I firewalk without burns. I bathe in the all-forgiving, all-anointing, purifying eye of old man Ra, and I wait for the others to join me on the roof. I'm positively zealous, says Madeline, in my devotions and my sacrifices, a holy mortification of sloughing flesh, and she tells me the others could learn from my example. Sweaty rivulets scald my eyes, and I blink away the little pain. I keep my eyes on the chocolate mountains. They'll come from there, says Drew. They will come from sunrise. I raise my arms and praise. I just looked up one day, and he was looking down, and he offered me a hand, and man, that was a goddamn first. It isn't your fault, little Chloe, that you fell so far. Chernobyl claims our souls. The opium kissed your blood to soothe the throb of now. And you fucked it and let it fuck you because no one else ever has loved you true and dear. He held me while I cried. He held me in a filthy alley behind a filthy concrete squat somewhere in the void between 93rd and 94th Streets in Westmont. I smelled of shit and infection, sour sweat and goodwill castoffs in that spray can graffiti gangland razor wild wire palm tree inferno, did he hold me tight and looking back that was surely 
the treacherous ninth circle, me sunk and frozen to my throat in the, icy, in the ice of the river Cositis. I had squandered teenagers behind me and my fast squandering twenties going down in rubble all around, but there he was, silver-haired and beautiful, eyes like this sky above me today. He offered a hand and freedom and absolution, and all I had to do was crawl up from the pit, from so far down to so far up here, the mountains out before me and the Salton Sea evaporating at my back, dying its slow, slow, inevitable inland death. I am poised between, being cooked same as H once cooked molten in my junkie spoon. I am being made ready for the coming evacuation of this ruined, forsaken planet. In those realms, the sun shines no brighter than a star, he tells us, Madeline and me and the others, and we what? As we watch the static and listen to the voices buried in the static, two waves superimposed to form the holy intersection of the third wave, mightier than the one plus the one, gathering half the deep and full of voices. We cling to him and we slowly rise and wait to be plunged, roaring, and in a wave will be in a cold blue flame. And he says, behold the black rivers of pitch that flow under those mysterious cyclopean bridges. I feel movement in my lungs and I cough. I taste blood and mold at the back of my throat and I spit on the roof. My spittle is thick and yellow, it sizzles. I smile, I smile a lot these days. Drew scooped me up from that Dantean alleyway so that I'd remember how I smiled when I was just a kid and all my fears were only kid fears and all my horrors were only kid horrors. He wrapped me in a musty leather duster that I think he stole from a Clint Eastwood movie and he put me in the front seat of that old red Buick station wagon he drives and he ferried me back to life good as if Charon had changed his mind. Drew is a magician. He makes time run in all directions. Man, he makes time do his motherfucking bidding. They gave him that power over clocks and wristwatches. And that day I listened as Madeline talked from the back seat and Drew followed the varicose labyrinth of numbered highway signs, east and south, leaving the big orange in the back of us for the blessed sanctuary of the Sonoran promised land, rolling me smooth on white walls, steel belts, past enchanted places I'd never been, Palm Springs, Rancho Mirage, Indio, Thermal. When I saw the turnoff from Mecca, I asked, this is it? And he laughed, that quicksilver laugh he laughs, and shook his head, no, little Chloe, but we're close now. Now we're very, very close. Another few miles, and I got my first sight of the Salton Sea. I got my eyes full. I'll tell you stories, he said, when you've got your bearings, stories about the how and the why and the when of it. You mean the water? I mean it all, baby doll. I lit a cigarette, breathed smoke and nicotine, and marveled at a great flat house at a great flat houseboat stranded by the side of the road like the skeleton of a dead whale. There was broken furniture scattered about on its deck, and the name written across its bow in letters faded not quite to illegibility was Heart's Desire. Last chance, Drew said, and I asked him, Last chance for what? Never mind, he said. Never you mind, little Chloe. One day I'll tell you what the Indians knew, one day real soon now. I stand in the sun. I stand on the broiling roof of the ranch house, and my feet have long since burned until they are calloused and numbed as if they were shot full of Novocaine. I can hear the TV playing below me, it's static, choked up with voices, because in the mouth of the beast there are more beasts. I stand with my arms raised, feeling it all, hearing it all, thinking just for an instant, maybe Drew got it wrong. Maybe my prophet is fallible, and in just a second or two more, I'm going to come apart at the seams and scatter in a spray of photons and spores, like, you know, those ancient crumbs of the big bangs spilling out across forever to reach an old TV set. I'll be the first of those little bangs to come. I'll be both his alpha and omega, and he'll be proud, and not for one second regret having found me and saved me from the needle's prick. Let me just ask you this, Drew says, whispering in my ear and speaking from some other day, from now and then and some tomorrow yet to come. He sounds like hellfire, sulfur, and silk sheets. How much have you thought about what was really in back of that great digital switchover in 2013? The fact that it was mandatory, I mean, the forced cessation of analog transmissions, the goddamn digital television transition and public safety act of 2005, Congress, the FCC, the American Association of Broadcasters, all talking about conserving electricity and how we're going, and how we're getting such better picture quality, right? Yeah, sure, but who pulls their strings? What this is really about, because now not just anyone can switch on the tube and catch that sacred 1% signal. In every cubic centimeter of the universe, there are 300 photons from the Big Bang. And SETI, that was just some hippie scientist boondoggle. And that's what's really going on here, see? You got these gatekeepers not wanting us to gaze into the oldest fossil in all creation, the very face of God. 
I hear the TV, and I can hear the others. Some of them are so much farther along than me. I'm not good about hiding my jealousy. I make no secret of the fact that I want to be the first to bloom, and that's okay because humility ain't got no place in their plan. Stop and think, okay? Andrew taps his finger hard against his forehead the way he does when he's making a point. Just stop and fucking think. The NTIA, OPAD, the Office of Spectrum Management, Media Flow, fucking Microsoft, and definitely fucking Apple. You ever wondered about the Beatles and Apple? You ever looked at the label at the center of a vinyl copy of the Beatles Abbey Road or Let It Be? Ever done all the, the correlative and concordance work linking all those Apple Records releases? Badfinger, Billy Preston, the Radha Krishna Temple, Doris Goddamn Day and Ronnie Spector, Ravi Shankar, and etc. and etc. and etc and seen where the siren trail leads, how it all gets tangled up in that Los Altos garage with Jobs, Wozniak, and Ronald Wayne. You ever thought about why Apple Inc. is Apple Inc.? That bullshit job spun about his fruitarian diet? I seriously hope you're not gonna buy that crap. <coughs> about Jobs, Jobs and Orchards and Sir Isaac Newton, the misdirection of that original logo with Newton sitting beneath the tree waiting to be struck by gravity. Yeah, they kind of showed their hand there. What with Yggdrasil, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the Bodo tree, the Glastonbury thorn, <coughs> Ficus religiosa, and, Crata and Cretaceous monogyna, respectively. A is for apple, yeah, right, and I got a bridge you're gonna buy real cheap up in Cisco. I want to open my eyes, the windows to my soul, but Drew reminds me it's too soon to burn out my retinas. I'm gonna need them just a little longer. The station wagon, cherry red, rushed past the heart's desire. And Madeline was talking again about the tourist trade, resort getaway boom and bust of the Salton Sea, about Sonny Bono and avian botulism. I listened, but her words were bleeding through me. My head was too full of sun and sea and earth. You know that Apple Records sued Apple Computers in 2003, Drew asks his congregation. Kind of odd they waited so long, isn't it? That's another bit of misdirection. But the truth is that the music playing in that fateful Los Altos garage, Steve Jobs' parents' garage, it was Let It Be, Abbey Road, Yellow Submarine, and Yeah, The White Album. But wait, before you start in about that lunatic Manson, he got it all that shit wrong. Manson was a cunt, and he was also crazier than a shithouse rat. No, you listen to Revolution 9, okay? Rouge doctors have brought this specimen 9, number 9, a man without terrors, only to find the night watchman unaware of his presence in the building. Below me, I hear the screen door bang shut, so here they come, the others, and in a moment, they climb up the ladder and I won't be alone with the heat of the chocolate mountains and the jackrabbits. I won't be alone with Drew's precious whispers. Some days I'd like to murder the lot of them, if only that were a part of the plan. By now, they're probably partway up the rickety ladder leading to the roof and me. Take this, brother, it may serve you well, El Dorado, if you become naked. I turn my back on the mountains and face the white and stinking salt and sea. How much time do I have? A little more. water. Huh? Water. Well, that was the end of that section. Um, so I'll go back. just a tiny bit from the first section. One, Oddfellows Local 171, July 9, 2015. Here's the scene. It's Thursday evening and the signalman sits smoking and nursing a flat diet Dr. Pepper, allowing himself to breathe a stingy sigh of relief as twilight finally mercifully comes crashing down on the street, on the desert. The heavens above West 2nd Street are blazing like it's 1945 all over again and the Manhattan Project has mistakenly triggered the Trinity Blast one state over from the White Sands Proving Grounds. Or he thinks like this is the moment 50,000 years ago when a huge nickel iron meteorite vaporized herds of mastodons, horses and giant ground sloths just 16 miles southwest of this shitty little diner and its cracked naugahyde seats and fly-blown windows. Either simile works just fine by the signal man. Either way, the sky is falling. Either way is entirely apropos. He checks his wristwatch again, sees that it's only been seven minutes since the last time, then goes back to staring out the plate glass as shadows and fire vie for control of the dingy, sun-baked soul of Winslow, Arizona. His unkind face stares at him from the glass, easily 10 years older than the date on his birth certificate. He curses, stubs out his cigarette, and lights another. It's not that she's late. Is that the train from LA dumped him out in this den of scorpions and Navajo tchotchkes at 6.39 a.m. and by 7.15 a.m. 
whatever wasteland charm the town might hold had worn thin and worn out. What the fuck do you say about a place whose sole claim to fame is a mention in a Jackson Brown song? He got a room at La Posada, the celebrated Mary Coulter's masterpiece of terracotta and stucco, and then discovered that he couldn't sleep. He turned on the radio and tried to read a book he'd brought, but it was impossible to concentrate. He kept reading the same paragraphs over again. So the signal man spent the day haunting the sidewalks, restless, sweating, half blind from the sun, wearing down the heels of his J.C. Penney Oxfords and occasionally ducking in somewhere for a soda, then ducking out again into the heat, wanting to be drunk, needing to stay sober. The scalding air stank of dust and creosote, and he watched the local PD watching him, their minds clicking like locusts. Who is this scarecrow in a cheap suit and wayfarers that the Southwest chief has seen fit to disgorge on our doorstep? If it weren't for the long arm of the company, he'd likely have been arrested for loitering or vagrancy or something else. But all of his papers are in order, copacetic, so to speak. So no matter, <clears throat> no matter how off the books, I need to know this might be. Albany isn't taking chances, not tonight. Not when Wyatt has seen fit to cough up the likes of the Immaculata Sexton for a sit-down. The waitress comes around again and asks if he needs anything else, a refill or maybe a piece of pie. There's lemon meringue, she tells him. There's blueberry. He would say she's a pretty enough girl, despite the ugly scar over her left eye. A pretty girl who's escaped the hillside slums of Heroica Nugales to serve cheeseburgers and huevos rancheros in this gringo grease trap. Still, it's a job, right? Better than her mother ever had, a woman who died at 43 after 25 years selling designer tags on jeans and a mechiadora. The signalman knows the waitress's story, just like he knows the stories of the two cooks and the dishwasher, just like he knows the names of the proprietor's three daughters. Every little thing that the signalman doesn't know is a blind spot, a weakness he can't afford and won't abide. Estoy bien gracias, he says, but doesn't ask for the check. On her way back to the counter, she glances over her shoulder, and he catches the glint of the waitress's and he catches the glint of wariness in her eye. The signalman checks his watch again. And then the brass cowbell nailed above the diner door jingles, and he looks up as a tall, pale woman steps in off the street. She's carrying a carbon fiber zero Halliburton attache case in her left hand. For a moment, it seems to him like something is trailing behind her, as if the, as if the coming night has tingled <coughs> itself about her shoulders, has snagged in her short black hair and won't let go. But the impression passes, and he sits up a little straighter in the booth, tugs nervously at his tie, and nods to her. The signalman's heard stories enough to fill a fat paperback bestseller, but he never expected to actually meet this woman face to face. The Macalata Sexton is a long way from home. Thanks. And, um, thank you. And that'll be out in February from Tor. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, I'm Matt Kressel, and my co-host is Ellen Datlow. We've been doing the fantastic fiction at KGB series. Uh, well, I've been doing it for eight years. Ellen's been doing it for... Uh, no, she's been doing it for uh, maybe 14, I don't know. And then the series itself has been going since the late 90s. Um, and it's always free. And all we ask is that you uh, buy a drink, hard or soft, and tip your bartenders who are working hard to keep the series going. Um, we, uh, we do pay for the authors, we do give them a little stipend, and we also uh, tip the bartender, and we take the authors out to dinner, um, and we do, every couple of years we do a fundraiser to, just to um, support that, and we're, we're kind of running low on funds, so in the next few months, probably after the new year, we may do another fundraiser, and we usually have like cool prizes, so I think, um, you know, we have like signed books, and I think one time they had like a Neil Gaiman keyboard that he supposedly typed the Sandman on, who knows if he did or not, but that's what he told us he did. Um, stuff like that. Um, so it's, it'll look for that. Um, so yeah, so... Uh, Any our, list? Yeah, if you, if you want, um, you could always follow uh, Ellen or myself on Twitter, we always tweet about this, uh, or you could go to uh, kgbfantasticfiction.org, we have the schedule for the next about six or eight months up there. And there's also a mailing list, so if you, uh, if you want to be on the mailing list, I send out like two or three emails a month just reminding about the, the series. If you want to get on that, just uh, let me know. I'll put you on the list. All right, so our, uh, our next reader is Jack Ketchum. Jack 
Ketchum is the author of 30 books, novels, novellas, collections, nonfiction, and poetry. His most recent being the novel, The Secret Life of Souls, which I think there are uh, still a few left in the back. Written with- I've got some too. He has some as well. Written with director Lucky McGee and the collection Gorilla in My Room, both due out this winter. Five of his novels have been filmed, The Lost, Red, The Girl Next Door, Offspring, and The Woman, the latter also written with Lucky McGee. He's the five-time winner of the Bram Stoker Award, most recently for Lifetime Achievement Award, which is awesome. He lives in New York City. Here's Jack Ketchum. Okay, um, no. Okay, this is uh, from Gorilla in My Room, which is, hello, uh, that's good, which is gonna be out, it's from Cemetery Dance. So we're thinking it's going to be out sometime this year, but if you know Cemetery Dance, it could be a little later than that. Uh, but it'll be out soon. The story's called Bully. So it's all pouring out of him now. He's all over the place. We're done with the weather and this small talk. It's like I've set something loose inside him, which he says he's not spoken of in... 20 odd years. And maybe it's his own three scotches to my one, but I think it runs much deeper than that. I think he's speaking about who he is and why. I can't ride a horse to this day, he says. Don't even want to go near one. The why this particular, why this in particular should bother an NYU law professor in his early 60s is unclear to me. He did grow up on a farm but it was a dairy farm, wasn't it? He doesn't immediately, immediately explain. Instead, he goes elsewhere. Here's the kind of man my father was. Tip of the iceberg. Here's what you did see. Mama had a big family, 10 brothers and sisters, so there were plenty of cousins coming around, especially in summertime. Sussex County was beautiful country then, all rolling hills, lots of open farmland in summer everything green. And John was always there to greet the kids. My cousins made a point of it. He had these big calloused hands, and with the boys you would always want to shake, which meant grinding your knuckles till it hurt. The little girls would get a bear hug. He'd lift them off the ground. Remember, he was over six feet tall. And his habit was to shave just twice a week. So he'd rubbed their cheeks with his two-day, three-day growth, grinning all the time like it was all good fun, the knuckle grinding, the rubbing. And the thing is, I don't remember a single parent complaining. Not once. It was just John being John, that's all. He leans back against the plush striped sofa, drink in hand, and legs spread wide, and stares up a moment at the ceiling. It's a low ceiling in a small one-bedroom apartment, but it doesn't seem small. There's lots of empty space on the walls, which tends to open it up some. Only two prints in the living room, one of a Japanese litho of a cowering geisha with an angry-looking man standing over her, and another of an English countryside in haying season. But the farm has not left the boy. An antique tin washboard, a two-handed saw, checkerboard, and grain sifter also hang there. The furnishings are largely American primitive, and aside from the rocker I'm sitting in and his sofa, look pretty uncomfortable. I gather he doesn't entertain much. Me, I'm used to far more space, too much maybe. With Mary off to college and mother gone, the split-level condo in Sarasota sometimes seems a vast hulk of something, a butterfly fled of its cocoon. His drink is almost gone. <clears throat> Mine half finished. I'm wondering, will he have another? Let me tell you about my brother, he says. His older brother, Steve, is dead of cancer three years now. My brother was a hell of a shot. With a 22 rifle or with a bow and arrow. He was hopeless at hunting, though. He never knew how to lead an animal, my father said. He had to lead a rabbit or a pheasant. He had to figure its trajectory. Steve could never manage that. But I always suspected he was missing on purpose. 
Then one night, they were going out coon hunting. My Uncle Bill and my father and Jackie Wurtz and Cal Hampshire. Cal had the dogs. My brother Steve was only 13, and he'd never night hunted before. And he was thrilled when my father asked him. He said that traveling through the woods with four grown men following the dogs barking up a storm ahead of them on a nearly full moon, starry night was great fun. Exciting as all hell. But then, of course, they treed the coon. They break into a small clearing, and there's the raccoon, crouched on a limb about 15 feet off the ground, with half a dozen dogs leaping at him and growling and barking. And my father hands Steve his 22 rifle and says, shoot him. For my brother, it's an easy shot. But my brother doesn't want it. For one thing, it's so damn easy, hell, it's beneath him. And more importantly, he's never killed anything before. And he doesn't want to start now. Certainly not with anything as beautiful in the moonlight and scared as that poor raccoon. He tries to hand the rifle back to my father, but my father shrugs and says, you got a choice, son. Shoot to kill. You hit him, in the, you hit him right between the eyes, or else I'll wing him in the shoulder and let the dogs have him. Whatever you want, up to you. My brother's shot, never hunted again. He twirls his ice, gets up and heads, heads toward the kitchen. He'll have another. Halfway there, he turns and gestures toward me with the glass. Sorry, he says, my mind's all backed up on me. How about you? Thanks, I'm fine. I'm not exactly fine. What I am is disturbed. Not just by what he's been telling me, by, but what I already know about John McPhee, which this is all just reinforcing. I smooth out my skirt. It's a nervous habit. He returns with his scotch and settles in. There's an awkward pause, awkward pause. Reminds me that we don't really know one another yet. He's my third cousin, once removed. Before tonight, we'd never met, only talked on the phone, and very little about such as this. Uh, you said something about horses? <laughs> he laughs. It was my father's way of teaching me how to ride or how not to. He and Mama both had horses. Hardly ever rode together, but they both did love to ride. Didn't need them for farm work. It was just a luxury. So I'm six years old, seven maybe, and I've been bugging him to let me try. So he saddles up Chester one day, which is his horse, and hauls me up, but he doesn't adjust the stirrups. My feet can't even begin to reach. So I sort of mention this, and he says, doesn't matter. Then he whacks the horse on the ass, pardon my French, and Chester bolts off one way and I fly off the other. I hear sirens down on the street. My eyes go to open, the window open behind him, he notices. Sometimes I don't even hear them anymore, he says. Fire blocks, two blocks, firehouse, two blocks south. Sometimes I hear, sometimes I don't. You got to figure, every day, somebody's emergency, somebody's disaster. If you think about it, keeps you sane in a way, doesn't it? Tell me about the well, I ask him. He blinks rapidly, staring at me. I know it's intruding on his narrative, but it's what I'm here to know. He reaches down for the pack of Winston's, shakes one out, and lights it. There are levels upon levels of cruelty, I think, he says. You know what I mean? Somebody does something really rotten. There are worse things. I heard about this guy the other day. Walks into Bloomingdale's, the fur department. Half a dozen women in there, trying on mink and sable or whatever. And he's wearing this full-length fur coat. But it's not just any fur coat. It's a patchwork of dog skin. Poodle, chow, husky, whippet, long hair, short hair, whatever. How many of the ladies have dogs, he says. You gonna walk your dogs in those coats? Hey, I'm walking my dogs right now. How do you like that? Rotten thing to do to those ladies, right? Confrontational, embarrassing, you could say cruel. But which is worse, the guy in the skin or the ladies? <laughs> Bloomingdale's is worse. <coughs> I don't see where he's going with this. 
I don't see where you're going with this, I tell him. <laughs> he drinks, ha <laughs> hell, he says, neither do I. I wait, finish my drink. I don't really like scotch until you hit the bottom of the glass where the ice is melted and the taste is softened to something smooth and creamy. Not bad now. I'll tell you what you didn't see. Nobody did. Not unless you were family. Not unless you were Steve or me. He's not going to, work to the well yet. I figure, okay, fine. Probably best to let him tell it his own way. You didn't see what was going on between him and Mama. Listen, what got you started on this anyway? I've already told him that on the phone. He doesn't seem to remember. After Mother died, I was going through her photo albums. The kind with the little triangular corners that mount the photos, you know. Some of the pictures were dated and some weren't. Some had mother's handwriting on the back telling you who the people were and some didn't. I knew most of them anyway, aunts, uncles, cousins, her girlfriends. But there was one photo of a woman standing by a split rail fence, leaning back against the fence, actually with one foot up on the bottom rail of the fence, staring straight into the camera. And not only was she pretty, with a really lovely smile, but she looked, she looked very strong to me. She looked strong and honest. That's the best way I can put it, strong and honest. She made that impression. He's nodding gravely. She was that. Mama was both those things. I give it a respectful beat. So I, I took her picture out of the album and looked it on the back, and Mother had written nothing on that one for some reason. <coughs> Excuse me, no date, no name either. Though from the plain print dress she was wearing, I could guess it was taken way back in the late 1920s, early 30s. There was something Great Depression era about the dress, you know? Like a Walker Evans photo. Only her mother was a lot prettier than the women Evans photographed. And she didn't look as scared and troubled. But I was also guessing she was only in her 20s when it was shot, which made that impression that she gave all the more startling. I mean, a woman that young. <coughs> Anyhow, my Aunt Kay was driving up that weekend to look for some of Mother's things, and I thought she might know who this woman was. So I put the photo on the kitchen counter next to the coffee pot so we didn't forget to ask her. I was just curious. <laughs> And then when we sat down for coffee, she looked at the picture and she said, why, that's, that's Cousin Louise, John's wife. And at first she seemed happy and surprised. And then she looked very sad. She told me what she knew, that your mother had died of a broken neck at the bottom of a well at age 30 told me there had been an investigation that had been ruled an accidental death, that your mother had gone out one night without a lantern or a flashlight and fallen into the well. I thought, I thought, wait a minute, this makes no sense. How could she fall into a well on her own farm, on her own property? Give me a hit. I'm very dry. Yeah. No, I'll take this. Okay. <laughs> Gordon and I share all the time. <clears throat> How could she fall in a well on her own farm, her own property? My aunt had no answer to that. But Kay is pretty easy to read. There was something she wasn't saying. So, I'd stew on that every now and then for months. I just couldn't leave it be. This relative of mine, that strong-looking woman, how was this possible? It was like having a pebble in your shoe, you know what I mean? So finally I got up the courage to phone you. He nods. And then it's like he hasn't been listening to me much at all. He picks right up where he left off. What nobody else saw was how he treated her. Her father had a rage in him. And where it came from, damned if I know. Maybe it was the war. Maybe it was his own father. Something in his blood. Didn't matter in the long run. Because it was like... The rage was there all the time, just below the surface. And you didn't even have to be drunk to go off like a bomb in that house. Though he did like his beer. 
thing is, Mama always took it for us, for all of us, for me and Steve too, and not just herself. I swear that man hated kids. She took damn near every bit of it. We hardly ever got touched. Though I suppose you'd have to accent the hardly ever part. Still, it was knowing you're our fair share, if you could call it that. Sometimes she'd fight back. Those times are the worst. Mostly she just let him go at her until it played itself out. Nobody knew because he never touched her face. Never, just her body. He was clever that way. <coughs> Excuse me. Just what you couldn't see. But I know for a fact he broke a rib or two ribs several times. I saw him dislocate her shoulder at least three times, I can remember, and then pop it back in place. He seemed to like that. Hurt like hell, but all he had was bruises after. You can't imagine what it was like hearing her scream. He hit her, kicked her, everywhere. And I mean everywhere. And you can't begin to... Then I guess the inevitable happens. He begins to cry quietly. He's shaking. Why am I doing this, I'm asking? What do I want from this man? What's the point of my being here? She took it all, he says gently. Everything for us. I'm sorry, Jeff, I shouldn't have. No, it's all right, it's not your fault. I think about it all the time, believe me. But I guess I've got some of Mama in me. I don't speak about it. She was so damn brave. Why did she have to be so damn brave? I can't help it. I reach over and take his hand. And it's a good thing to do for both of us, I think. Because after a while, his sobbing subsides a little. I could use that drink now, I tell him. Both of us have our drinks. His is number five, but who's counting? And it sure doesn't seem like it's affecting him much. Maybe telling his story is bleeding his stuff away. We've gone off subject again. It's probably for the good at the moment. I've told him about Mary and raising her alone in Florida after my divorce, and my mom dying of cancer, same as his brother Steve, who, as it turns out, grew up to be an oncologist and had the dubious distinction of having diagnosed his own disease. Oncologist, professor. These Jersey farm boys, I think, pretty much made good. That last night, he says, she was under the porch. Under the porch? Steve and I were in our room while all the fighting was going on, listening to her screaming, even worse than usual, and him bellowing, and the slaps, and the groans, and the furniture slamming, and then after a while it got quiet. But we still waited a long time because he never knew. Finally, Steve opened the door and went down the hall, me following. And I figured this time he was drunk because there he was, asleep on the couch, snoring, and there were beer cans everywhere. But we couldn't find Mama. We looked in the kitchen, the bedroom, the bathroom. We went outside to the porch. It was a warm night, so maybe she's out there on the steps or the swing, we thought. But she wasn't there either. We walked all around the house looking for her, Steve calling her real soft because we didn't want to wake my father. And then we went out to the barn, but no answer and no Mama anywhere. We were pretty scared by then. I mean, what if she finally had enough of that brutal bastard and run away? Wouldn't have blamed her if she did. Who would have? We considered it. But that would have left us alone with him, and we didn't think she'd do that. Just leave us there. It wasn't in her. The thing is, we thought, then maybe he'd killed her. Maybe he'd finally <coughs> gone and done it. So after that, it wasn't exactly Mama we were looking for. We thought maybe we were looking for a body. My God. Steve had the flashlight from the barn. The kind from World War II, you know, Bakelite, shaped like an inverted L. First we searched the barn, then the back of the barn, and then behind the house and the road and the fields on either side. Nothing. Eventually, we just ran out of steam, I guess. I guess we were just exhausted. So we went back to the house. And that's when Steve remembered that the one place we hadn't looked was under the porch. And that's where he found her. He nods. 
and that's where we found her. Crouched down there like some trapped animal, like a raccoon caught in a garbage can. You know what she said to us? She said, don't tell daddy. He hasn't been drinking through any of this. He does now, so do I. It was different this time, though. How so? This time, the face was a mess. This time, he'd hit her in the face. Hell, he might have kicked her in the face, for all I know. That's how bad it was. One eye shut, the other eye damn near shut, lips split, one side of her jaw all blue and swollen. Jesus. He's seen that face right now. I'm sure of it. He's a 10-year-old kid seeing his mother for the last time ever. And this is how she looks. He'd never, ever done that before. The son of a bitch was always careful. I'm hearing sirens again, multiple sirens, big night in the city. As he said before, sometimes he notices and sometimes he doesn't. This time he apparently doesn't. She told us to go to bed and act like none of this had ever happened and to do the same thing the following day to act like everyone was the same as usual, as though her face were just fine. So we did as we were told. I don't think we said so much as a word to one another, just got undressed and got into bed, each with our own thoughts, I guess. But it turned out we didn't have to play act in the morning. He reported her missing at dawn, first thing. We got up to two deputies from the sheriff's office talking to him in the kitchen over coffee. I think, from what you told me on the phone, that you know the rest of it. I do. The search party, the old, deep well, long dry, the investigation that followed, if you could call it an investigation. Except for maybe one thing you don't know, he says. We told on him. You did? We told Sheriff Downey he'd been beating up on her. We were old enough to know about autopsies. We wanted an autopsy. We wanted an x-rayer. See those bones he'd broken over all those years. He listened to us. He said they'd consider it, that he'd put it in his report. But my father and Sheriff Downey hunted together. They were VFW. They were Elks Club. So we never got our autopsy. I think what he did do, though, was I think he warned him off us, scared him, maybe, because he never tried to lay a hand on us again. He got mad, he just drank himself into oblivion. It was almost as if he was afraid of Stephen and me after that. One more? I realize I've been swirling the ice in my glass. Sure. I, I don't have to drive, I'm staying at a nearby hotel. Cabs are a very fine thing if you've had two or three. He fixes the drinks and returns, and this time when he sits, I can see he's a little wobbly. You know what I think happened? I think he woke up at some point that night or early morning and went looking for her, found her under there, and realized that this time somebody was going to notice. We didn't get any visitor we didn't get many visitors, but in those days neighbors were a liable to drop by unannounced to borrow something or maybe just talk for a while. And Mama's face was going to be hard to explain away. Hell, she belonged in a goddamn hospital. I think he covered his tracks. I think he broke her neck and dumped her body in that well. My God. I've said that already. Seems it bears repeating. I'm actually glad you called me, he says. He says it so softly I barely hear him. Really? I can't see why he would be, dredging this up for a total stranger. Part of me's Always wanted to go back there. Wanted to for a long, long time. After I called you, I finally did. You saw him? His father's in his 80s now, still living at the farm. I checked. I hadn't seen him since Steve's funeral, and probably not for 20 years before that. You know, nobody stood next to him at that funeral, not a soul, and he left directly after. He lost all that muscle, looked so much smaller than I remembered, maybe by a hundred pounds. But yeah, I saw him one last time out of the farm. I'm not going back. 
We really wanted that autopsy, Steve and I. We felt cheated, you know? Like the whole world had cheated us. Not just him and the sheriff's department, but everybody. Because Mama deserved to be heard. She should have been allowed to call out the world from that well and that grave and name him. So what I did was, this time, I went to the well. Went there before I went to the house. I went to the well first. I went there and I listened. It was a nice, quiet day. He raises his glass, seems to consider drinking, doesn't, puts it down instead. In the background, sirens again. I heard what she had to say. And I went to the house and there he was, sitting in his chair, surprised as hell to see me. And afterwards, when I, when I went back to the well, I didn't go alone. And Jack, thank you, Caitlin. Uh, both readings were fantastic tonight. Thank you all for coming. Thanks to the KGB Bar. Uh, like I said before, we have books for sale in the back, and uh, we'll see you next month. So uh, have a good night. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB Bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.